excited here. Talking about taxes. I'm, I love taxes. <laughs> Most people don't, but that's why I do what I do. I'm going to be strategically harvesting money and putting them into buckets so that long term I'm paying the least amount of tax possible, right? Goal isn't always pay the least amount of tax now, it's pay the least amount over my lifetime. You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast, Affinity Group LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Rochelle Vanderzanden here, as always, with my co-host, Corey Janoff. Hey there. Yep. We're here to talk about taxes. Very exciting. We actually have a special guest today. It's Ryan Kramer. Say hi, Ryan. Hello. Yeah. He's part of our Affinity Tax Division, and he works with a lot of our clients. Specifically, he works with a lot of business owners and also people that kind of have high net worth. Um, And this information, we're going to try to get it out to you just for informational purposes so you guys have some little helpful tidbits. But if you do need specific advice for your plan, please reach out to a tax professional that can actually help you with those specifics. This is not that. Without further ado, let's get started a little bit. Yes. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Excited here. Talking about taxes. I love taxes. (laughs) Most people don't, but that's why I do what I do. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, it's tax season right now. Uh, maybe let's dive right into it. What are some things that doctors and I guess anyone in general should do as they approach tax day? So I, I'm going to start that with you should have had a plan in place back in January. And and if you didn't, then you'll want to come up with a plan for next year now. For the most part, you can't do anything. We can't go back and add to the 401k, 403b. Um it's past us. Now, there are other avenues of opportunity. So for example, if you've not funded a backdoor Roth contribution conversion, we still have until April 15th of 2020 to do so. If you had planned on making charitable contributions, you still have until December 31st to do so. If you've got a pile in your garage of goodwill, just get that down there, get the receipt. Um, Biggest thing is documentation. Right. If you don't know about it, if you didn't document it, then your CPA or your tax software or whatever you do, um, if you don't have good books and records or a good system to capture all of that information, it's lost forever. So that would be my recommendation is stay organized. If you're not organized, go back and get organized. Um, Talk to your financial planner. Talk to your... CPA and make it happen. It's really 2019 is behind us, but now is when you can start coming up with a plan for 2020. 2019 is behind us because today it's it's 20 2019, but when this is published, it'll be 2020. <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah. have the same on your 2020 taxes. On your 2020 taxes, don't have the same problem on Next December year. 2020. So if we're if if you're maybe listening to this a couple months before April 15th or after after April 15th, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing you can do, but it's essentially that backdoor Roth is about your last opportunity of benefit. Could be that you might have a health savings account 
uh, amounts that you haven't fully funded, um, you'll have until April 15th to get that fully funded as well. So a, a few tax deductible avenues. Some states have uh, the, the 529 plans that can get funded until the due date of the tax return in your state and it just depends on um, uh, is there a deduction in your state and should you fund it, right? So I guess that would lead to the natural next question of, you know, if last year is behind us, we can't really do anything to help our taxes this coming April, but what are some steps people should take looking ahead throughout this year to help better position themselves for tax savings? next year yeah and it really depends on what your income sources are right mm -hmm. so let's just take as an example if you're just if, if all you've got is uh, w-2 income mm -hmm. um, a little bit later we can jump into okay well we've got w-2 income what if we have other sources of income whatever are the opportunities that we can take advantage of and if you have w-2 and that's it then we're looking at the for any of our clients uh, we're looking at the order of operations for tax savings. And what I mean by that is we look at what is your marginal your marginal tax rate and do we choose, depending on income, typically, in general, it's if we're over 315000 in taxable, um, that's federal marginal income tax rate, approximately 315 married filing joint. We're looking at a 24% a marginal tax rate, right? And the kind of point of apathy for me, whether I'm gonna make a recommendation for pre-tax or post-tax dollars, is gonna be that 25% combined federal state income tax rates. Now, there are, there are as, as with any answer in tax, it's always gonna be it depends, and it really, it, we, we look at both the client and their long-term plan and their short-term plan, um, so my answer could vary from one person to the next just because of a sweet, slight tweak in facts and circumstances. But in general, we're gonna go with 25% point of apathy. So if you're making more than that amount, if you have a higher marginal tax rate, then we're gonna dump all the money that we can into pre-tax dollars. So we're maxing out the 401k or 403b. Um, in addition, if you have access to a 457, we're maxing that out as well. We're, Really, it's important to speak with the HR department, talk with your financial planner who can help analyze benefits um, if they do that, and and go in and say, okay, here are my pre-tax options. I have these 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 potential benefits. What can I utilize and what should I utilize, right? Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. There are many flex spending account, accounts, for example, where it's a use it or lose it. Well. Yeah, you got a tax deduction and you didn't use any of it. That's completely worthless. You just right? lost your money. Yeah, we just <laughs> threw away a dollar to save twenty five cents. Oh, I did so good. You didn't just do so good. You you made a mistake, right? And I have seen clients do that or say, okay, I, I'm going to give so much money away because I'm going to get such good tax deductions. The charity you're talking about? Yeah, it's a charity. So at in that point, it's like, okay, well, what I want you to do is is to to pretend like you're not going to get a tax deduction when you give the money away and just give what you would give away for the from the goodness of your heart right mm -hmm. what what makes you feel good right if you're going to do it for a a tax strategy it's a very poor tax strategy right we're not going to throw away a dollar or give away a dollar to save 25 35 45 50 cents i'd rather have that 
55 cents less in my left in my pocket, even if I'm at a marginal tax rate of 65%, which there are some tax rate, some circumstances where that marginal tax rate will be 65%. Sometimes I'd still rather have that 35 cents than to spend money on something that I don't need, right? Well, so charities, like the new tax laws, is everyone eligible to deduct charitable contributions or is it only if you itemize? It's only if you itemize, correct. So, so you may not be able to get a tax deduction. You might not even be able to. You might just be giving away money thinking you're getting a tax benefit because it's quote unquote tax deductible. Well, guess what? It's not actually tax deductible for you, right? It's tax deductible, but you're receiving no tax benefit. So, Can you give an example of someone that would itemize? Yeah. So in general, you're going to own a house, mm-hmm. right? Because let's go... All the numbers that I'm going to give are going to be married, filing, joint. In general, let's just assume that um, if you are uh, single or married, filing, separate, then these numbers are going to be about half as much, right? So Mm -hmm. married, filing, joint, around $24,000 standard deduction. So how do you get there? Well, if you own a house, you have mortgage interest, right? Mm -hmm. And that's maybe $15,000. You're going to have state state income taxes and property taxes. However, those are limited to $10,000 total. So that puts us up to 25,000. Well, great, I've got this house, I've got property taxes, I've got income taxes, and I get about $1,000 of, of marginal benefit from having that. So the, the, old, the old theory that owning a house produces great tax savings no longer exists unless you have a million dollar mortgage and a high interest rate that would suck, right? <laughs> uh, maybe not the million dollar mortgage if you can afford it, but the high interest rate, right? Even on a million dollar mortgage, yeah, we might have 30 grand of interest, and, and but we don't get to deduct it all, right? Because I'm going to say, okay, with that dollars, I'm going to trace that back to the standard deduction. You only got $6,000 net benefit, right? So number one, own a house um, in general. But don't buy a house just because you might be able to save a couple Definitely bucks not. in taxes. It, the house will cost you more than you'll save in taxes. <laughs> Way more, just like kids. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, so next on top of that, then we look at, okay, once you've exceeded that threshold, then what are the marginal benefits? That's when you actually start to get a, a true benefit from charitable contributions. Because if you already own a house... You already own a house. You're already getting that mortgage interest deduction. You're already getting that property tax deduction. You're already getting either the general sales tax deduction or the income tax deduction, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're already getting that, then we could look at, okay, what what is my charitable contribution, the benefit from that charitable contribution going to be? And then it goes, okay, give out of the goodness of your heart unless you're, th- you're considering a, a major donation. And then it is critical, important to consider the tax implications because that should be part of that year's tax strategy, right? Absolutely should be. Um, there are also strategies where you can bunch the, the charitable contributions every other year, say, okay, I, I'm going to save up all my charitable contributions for 2019 and 2020, and I'm going to donate them all in 2020, right? Every 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 two-year period, you're consolidating those into one year, right? And that has the impact of, okay, that charitable deduction is higher, and maybe that puts you into above the 
the standard deduction and you'll actually get benefit in a, a year that you otherwise wouldn't have, right? Um, that was more impactful back when we had a much lower standard deduction. We have these tax rules for at least the next five years, including the current year, so 2020 through 2025. Um, at that point, we don't know what's gonna happen, right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna be addicted to these the individual lower tax rates. We're gonna be addicted to them, so I don't think that, I, what do I know, right? <laughs> Cong Congress doesn't ask me, I wish they would. I have so many good ideas that they will never implement. Write some letters. Uh, yeah, so, um, however, um, uh, for the time being, we have these incredibly historically low marginal tax rates and, and, and wide tax brackets for lower income. I mean, this is the time where, where we may forgo tax deductions and pay higher tax because it's the lowest that we will ever pay it. And, and that goes back to that order of operations for tax savings, right? So in general, depending on marginal tax rate, it goes number one, tax deductible, number two, tax-free, number three, um, taxable investments that we're dumping all money that we can save into. So if we're over that 25%, we're maxing out 401k, 403b pre-tax. Mm -hmm. um, if we're not, if we're below that, then we're probably going directly into Roth and we're, we're foregoing that tax deductible avenue because you know what, if I make 300 grand and I only have to pay at most 24%, mm -hmm. wow, that's pretty awesome. That'll never happen again for me, right? So these next five years, I'm going to be strategically harvesting money and putting them into buckets so that long term I'm paying the least amount of tax possible, right? Goal isn't always pay the least amount of tax now, it's pay the least amount over my lifetime, right? Um, that goes with income and estate taxes. So number two, Roth Avenue. So you might be thinking, okay, what's, what's a Roth? what's pre-tax, what's after-tax, three different types of money, right? Um, pre-tax, 401k, 403b, 457, in general, that's got a tax deduction up front, grows tax-free, comes out as ordinary income. That's a very important distinction because all of that growth that may have been preferential tax rates, long-term cap gain qualified dividends as it's growing, spitting off dividends, long-term cap gain when you trigger that unrealized gain and turn it, convert it into realized gain, right? That's 15%, 18.8, 23.8% rather than ordinary income, which may be right now 37%, but is, is, has been as high as 50%, right? And it may or may not be around, but probably will because again, we're addicted to it, right? Addicted to the long-term cap gains. So, so that is the ordinary income pitfall of that 401k money. Um, the next is the Roth. It's still good money though. We still like it, right? It doesn't mean that we don't do it. Um, we just get, we, we are very intentional about every, every action that we take. Be prepared to pay those taxes. Be prepared to pay yeah. those taxes. Next one is that Roth Avenue. And um, maybe you can make a direct Roth IRA contribution and you can do uh, Roth 401k contributions or your employer may allow a mega backdoor Roth within their plan, right? And in a 
after-tax contribution with an in-service conversion, also known as the mega backdoor Roth. I love those. Those are so awesome. To pause really quick for those that are their heads are exploding right now with all this garbage. <laughs> You know, the, the mega backdoor Roth we're referring to. So you can do up to 19500 this year as an employee contribution to a 401k, either pre-tax or Roth. Some employers now allow you to make additional after-tax contributions. So no tax deduction up front, uh, but above 19500 into a 401k um, or potentially 403b. And then you can actually convert those after-tax dollars into a Roth account or Roth IRA outside of the plan, potentially, if they allow it. Similar to the backdoor Roth IRA, but that's only a $6,000 limit. So yes. we're potentially getting you know thirty or 40000 into a Roth account each year now with this new provision that's limited, and who can do it? It's dependent on the employer, but it's something And cash flow. Yeah, and, and cash, cash flow, flow, of course. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you know we're starting to see that become more and more common. And I think one other thing that sometimes we talk about is the same thing as after-tax and Roth, but they're not. So when you put money into an after-tax contribution, you're still taxed on that growth in retirement, correct? Yeah, right. Exactly. But if you can convert it to the Roth, then you're not taxed you're not. on the growth so in retirement. The, yeah, that's the beauty of the Roth-type money is that right. you don't get a tax deduction, but it grows tax-free and it comes out tax-free. Mm-hmm. Right, and then the investment account—it's going to grow quasi-tax deferred and spit out capital gains, which we still like. Mm-hmm. So, if as long as it's invested properly, um, but that—that's the 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 crux of of what you, what the audience should be trying to do is looking at okay, if I'm in residency, how much do I realistically have to save? Not much, right? So as much as you can, as much as I can, <laughs> and I'm gonna and I'm gonna put it into a Roth, and that's gonna be the only bucket that I fill up, right? But as my income expands and as my income grows, when I get out of out of the Ponzi scheme that they call residency <laughs> and into real practice, right? Um, at that point, now I can fill up all these other buckets, and and now I'm really starting to move the needle on getting towards retirement and and a very comfortable retirement where I can pick and choose which bucket of money to pull from so I can design my taxable income and the types of income that I'm taking from for not only myself, but for for my kids or my beneficiaries or mm-hmm. wherever my money's going. And it gives you a lot of flexibility because we know that tax laws will change even while you're retired because hopefully you're retired for 30, 40 years. Absolutely. Right. Tax laws will change and that, that gives us that, that implicit flexibility. So um, I've got clients, just as a quick example, right now that, that saved at, at marginal tax rates of 55, 60%, mm-hmm. right? And moved to Washington, and now we're converting that income that we saved 60% on, we're converting it up to $315,000, and while we got that marginal rate of 60, we're pulling it all out, taking more than we even need in in taxable income um, and we're paying marginal tax rate of 24% and an effective of more like 15%. So we save 60, we're paying 15 and we're just converting 330 grand a year from 401k or you know now a traditional IRA or wherever it's sitting into a Roth and it's not for for them, it's for their kids. It's so that their kids don't have to reti- to inherit 
that pre-tax account. Their kids are going to inherit that Roth account, and their kids are going to 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 love me because I give that advice. <laughs> Tax-free money in their lives. So. Exactly. Mom and dad chose to pay taxes for you. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's right. <laughs> and this so. is this is big. Um, the whole flexibility of the planning ahead because we come across, you know, it's it's not uncommon that we'll talk to an accountant and, and a lot of accountants are hardwired to how do I save you the most taxes now? What yeah. can I do to get you a tax deduction today? Which is great. I mean, you could argue that's their job. How do I save you the most taxes now? And that's maybe what you want. But if we're really thinking big picture, that's where Rochelle and I as financial planners, we're not just thinking about today. What's what's the future look like? Mm-hmm. And what, how can we position ourselves to potentially uh, be better off down the road as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel like there's any missteps people make, common misconceptions, anything like that, bad advice? So in, in, this, in this particular um, uh, case, my, my answer is, that, is exactly what you said, that you should always be chasing those tax deductions. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's, and it, maybe it's not bad advice, but it, perhaps it's misguided or, or it, it's just not long-term thinking, right? I, I think not in the terms of now and next year. I think in these long time frames, right? I think in this multi-generational approach, um, which works for some people and doesn't work for others because for for some, depending on your unique circ- uh, facts and circumstances, that may or may not work. Um, but regardless, you know, I'll never recommend that anybody get a, a 12% tax deduction on, and put money into a 401k, especially knowing that most of the audience here is not going to be in the 12% tax rate in retirement. So it's 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 that holistic approach that is just critical. Do you think if someone doesn't have a Roth option in their 401k or their 403b, but they're in a very low income tax bracket, what would your advice be in that situation? Just do the Roth IRA? Roth IRA. And put everything else into a taxable account that you can save if you can save yeah. anything if you're in the if you have that source of income. Right. Yeah. There's employer matching. Obviously, take that. Right. Take the free yes. money. Free take money the free is money. Good. <laughs> free money is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess kind of a follow up. We may have already touched on it, but is there any bad information out there on ways to reduce taxes that are you know often not in a person's best interest? There are, I, yeah, I haven't run in, in, into any recently. I mean, a, a I know lot you mentioned of, the FSA, the, the flexible the FSA, spending yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Don't dump money into it if, if you don't have have to. Um, I mean, there's there's some kind of immaterial little strategies out there that that mm-hmm. just don't have a lot of meat to them, right? And it's mm-hmm. just like it, they're not helpful. They don't do much, and yeah. they're more trouble than they're worth. Um, the the couple of really bad strategies are the ones that get more sophisticated and most most residents most practicing doctors are, are not going to run into these the ones where you have like you have a rollover as business startup which can result in a hundred percent tax on your distribution from your IRA and then you end up owing the federal government you know hundred and thirty percent of what you took out of your IRA um, there are it's mostly just the accidental mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. You might have you might have a foreign bank account, right, and not know that you have to be t- 
telling the U.S. government about it once you're, if if you are considered a U.S. resident, not for citizen for citizenship purposes, but you're going to be treated like one for tax purposes a lot of times, right? So if you come into the country, um, and and you may not know that that ten thousand that account has ten thousand and one dollars back home and is producing two dollars of interest income a year that the fact that you forgot to to report that two dollars of interest income is going to get you hit with uh, a fifteen thousand dollar penalty right ten thousand dollars per year so it could be sixty thousand dollars it's ten thousand dollar per year failure to report plus uh plus um, 50% of the maximum balance in the prior six years as you were required to report it. So it's not not necessarily bad advice. It's just, you know, you got to be certain that you're doing this comprehensive, those, those yes-no questions, the questionnaires that you're going to get from any accountant are going to be a big pain to fill out. But you better fill it out because there's going to be things on there that you're never otherwise going to talk to your accountant about. And that helps flag it. So not a lot of bad recommendations out there. There's not a lot of really bad professionals, which is great. Um, but there's accidental mistakes that can be just devastating. Oversight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I've heard from clients a lot is, I'm going to buy a house for the tax break. Yeah, like, silly. We already talked about that a little bit too. But, I mean, there's lots of things you don't want to do for the tax break. Do it because you want to do it. Do it because we want to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you get some tax benefits, that's a bonus. So Absolutely. Getting married. To save on taxes. Okay, so usually I say no, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that is a good idea, mm-hmm. right? If you have disparate incomes and you're gonna get married, you know you're gonna get married, and it's in January or February or March or April or May or June of the next year, and a hundred percent you're not gonna not get married. You know this unequivocally. You're already cons- you already consider yourself married. That's when I'll say get married for tax purposes and go down to the courthouse, sign the paper don't in December. Anybody. Yeah, don't tell anybody. Just pretend like it's the first. <laughs> just don't tell your parents. Don't tell your friends. This is just for taxes, right? It's just yeah. for taxes. It's meaningless because you're you're gonna go do the wedding later, and that's when you're gonna do the ceremony and you're in and, and sign the fake form. Sign the fake form. That's when you're gonna celebrate your anniversary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you're getting married in a church, that's when you'll be married, like truly married. Who really cares? <laughs> about the stupid piece of paper that we that saved us $40,000 to pay for the wedding and the honeymoon and put another 20 grand into your investment account. Disparate incomes, that's what he said. Disparate incomes. <laughs> so kind of pivoting, a question we get a lot from doctors. Should doctors form business entities? Maybe, right? It depends. That's, that's, that's our favorite that's our, answer that's to every all question. C, all CPAs, that's our favorite answer is it depends. So there, there are a lot of things going on when you look at a business entity. And what are the types of business entities? Um, uh, we'll just say from the tax side, there is a sole proprietorship, right? That's just you. Um, there is a, an S-corporation, and from an S-corporation, money goes to the S-corp. Uh, you must pay yourself reasonable compensation. Reasonable compensation, in general, will be what must, what would you have to pay someone else to do what you're doing or what would you be hired to do guaranteed salary from from a hospital to do what you're doing um 
and everything else comes out payroll tax-free. And that's truly the only tax savings of the S-Corporation is, is that payroll tax savings um, on those distributions. And the other entity, C-Corporation, not in generally not going to be the best fit. It's pretty rare that that works out um, uh, to be the best option, extremely rare. Um, there's also going to be a partnership, which again is going to uh, not always going to be the best fit. Um, it really you need unique set, set of facts and circumstances for that to be the absolute best fit. Um, perhaps you need a special allocation of profits or something like that. Um, the other thing that that in particular that we'd want our audience to look at is okay if I've got ten. When, when, when am I going to need an entity? I'm going to need an entity maybe, maybe if I've got 1099 income, right? If I'm an independent contractor, if I'm doing per diem work, um, or maybe I have my own business, one of the two. Uh, and in that case, if you have that per diem work, it's okay, well, how much do you have, right? And if we do an S election on this income if we put an LLC in place and we do an S election on it uh, we're doing two things one we're adding costs because now we have a tax return that's very complicated just assume that it's gonna cost $2,500 at a minimum to prepare that thing $800 to run the payroll from a payroll company at a minimum um, so we've already got this cost when we've got this break-even that we need to exceed and then it depends on are we going to save on any FICA taxes and if, if you're a doc probably not you're going to have to have a minimum salary that's likely going to be over the social security limit and if you have another W-2 position say you have $200,000 of 1099 and 60000 of W-2 well you don't get to take that other position's W-2 income into account when setting your reasonable compensation from the S-Corp so you might end up having to blow that social security threshold and then you're paying corporate social security tax that you wouldn't otherwise have to do. So just to give an example, let's say you have $130,000 W-2, you've maxed out social security. Now you have $300,000 of 1099 income. You have to pay yourself 200 grand at least in reasonable comp, right? You're going to pay yourself 200 grand and you're going to throw out about $7,000 in FICA tax that you otherwise wouldn't have had to have paid. Right, so now we not only do we have the cost of prep, the cost of payroll, now we have this FICA tax waste. So that's a lot of what I see. Um, and I also hear, a lot of what I hear is you're going to get all sorts of tax deductions if you have an S corporation. Not any more than you wouldn't already have if you didn't have the S corporation, right? It doesn't, it doesn't give you any more opportunities in general. And to make things even more complicated, now we have the qualified business income deduction. So if if you would have received a 20% deduction on 100% of that 1099 income, but now you're gonna receive it only on the distributions from the S corporation, well, maybe we threw out, in the numbers that I just gave, maybe we threw out a $40,000 tax deduction that we would have gotten on those wages that we're now paying ourselves, right? So the gist of this is it's very, very complicated, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you need to run through your exact income streams with someone that knows all of these variables and can pick it apart and actually model it out, right? This is, you know, you can, for the most part, you know, anyone that 
is is uh, technically competent is going to be able to have a conversation and make a good recommendation. But there are those kind of bubble cases where you actually do have to model it out and determine how are we going to approach this. Um, more importantly than just entity selection is just getting that retirement plan on those sources of funds, right? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, one of my favorites is, you know, if you have a $600,000 W-2, right, and you've got $100,000 of 1099 income, well, you know, we could just back the napkin math, um, put 20 grand into a tax deductible avenue and put another 35,000 roughly into a, a mega backdoor Roth, right? It's pretty simple pretty easy to do. If you have $60,000 W-2 and $100,000 of 1099, we might decide, okay, well, best for you is, if possible, if cash flow allows, $55,000 mega back to a Roth and nothing in pre-tax, right? It just depends. Um, if you have $300,000 W-2, $300,000 of 1099, maybe we want to do a defined benefit cash balance plan and put it get a $250,000 deduction unless you're if you're towards the tail end of your career if you're at the start then based on age it's probably half that it just really depends it's all unique it's all different for every single person there are generalities of course um, but there's not going to be some big matrix that I can provide you or point you to where you can say this is where I fit right here it's all going to be based on the knowledge and expertise of of the the team that you've assembled and for that retirement piece so you know a lot of people are familiar with i can do six thousand to an ira 19.5 to a 401k as an employee but as a business owner or as an independent contractor that 401k limit you could set one up for yourself and put I guess in 2020, what is it, 57,000 in total plus an extra seven or six if you're over the age of 50. Correct. Plus potentially set up a cash balance pension plan or potentially do the mega backdoor. So you could you could stuff a lot of money into a, a lot tax of money. favorable account provided you have the cash flow. And now I, I with the cash balance plan, plans, um, 250 is not even right. That was a couple years yeah. ago number. Now it's like 300 something. Depends on your age. Yeah, depending on your age. Um, That's I just saw an illustration come through. Oh, 330 grand. I like that number. (laughs) When did they do that? That's awesome. Uh, Congress has someone that's making some 1099 income. (laughs) Speaking tours. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, defined benefit plans. So I guess I mean we could spend hours talking about tax strategies for business owners. Um, You know, but. And probably we'll do a separate podcast just on that. But maybe what are a couple quick highlights? If you're a business owner, you own your own practice. Um, you know, what are some of the just no brainers that you should be aware of? Or yeah, uh, it goes back to number one, number one, number one. Make sure that you have books and records, and and at minimum, say that you have a very simple practice, and and meaning, you know, you've got money coming in and not a lot of expenses going out. At minimum, you need to have that all run through one single bank account. Um, I mean, even even your credit card charges, have a corporate account, a card, if you want to get those rewards on it, right? That's why you want to run some expenses through that. Still run all your, be very diligent about running business expenses through a business account so that you don't lose those transactions. Um, or be very diligent of recording every single expense 
that you receive and make sure that when you get your 1099 that the income that they tell you that they gave you is the income that you received because it's someone that is likely making 15 bucks an hour doing a few thousand a few tens of thousands of 1099s at the end of the year and I've had many times where it doesn't match right it doesn't match the paycheck it doesn't match mm-hmm. and and uh, you don't want to overpay because you didn't ver- validate that the amount that they're reporting is correct. Um, and you don't want to miss tax deductible expenses because you failed to provide them. So that's number one. Goes back to the beginning of the conversation. Organization. Be organized. Right. Come up with a system that works for, me, for you. That system could be as simple as run it all through a bank statement and at the end of the year, throw it at your accountant and say figure it out. Right. That, that's the worst one, but it is one. And if it works for you, that's okay. Um, the best one is, you know, diligently tracking and recording and making sure that you are aware of what's going on. Uh, I say that, but, you know, I, I we've got a, a wonderful admin staff here, and I just, you know, she does all of it. We just throw the expenses at her, and she does all the things. And, mm-hmm. and we might be accountants, but we're not tracking that either. But I'm making sure every time I run that card, <laughs> if it's not going through the business account, there is an expense being recorded somewhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's so many things to think about as business owners that you just don't have to think about as W two employees. Yes. Do you have people come to you like asking, "What's better, should I be taking a W two job or should I do this 1099 job?" Do you ever have this conversation with clients? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, we do a lot. Yeah, and, and and the two things that I would suggest is one, look at the payroll tax ramifications because mm-hmm. if. I'm going to go very simple here, right? If you are looking at a $200,000 W-2 position versus exactly 200000 of 1099, you know, they would have otherwise been paying half of all the payroll taxes, right? So if you get gross W-2, 200000 or a 1099 of $200,000, it's 6.2 FICA tax that they would have been paying up to around 130,000 and 1.45% Medicare tax on the entire amount. So let's say that's $10,000, right? So that W-2 position could actually be $10,000 more in your pocket if you took it. On the flip side, maybe they don't have benefits, maybe they don't have retirement plan, maybe they don't even have health, right? And if you had that 1099 stream of income, um, certainly, I'll tell you right now, if if you were gonna get W-2 of 200 or 1099, anywhere close to that, your reasonable comp is all of your monies, right? So you're not gonna do an S-corporation, you're gonna be a sole proprietor, or, or you're gonna have, talk to your attorney Maybe they're going to recommend that you have an entity in place. We're still going to be, if we can, if, if we're not in California in general, we're still going to be a disregarded entity. Um, now, am I going to give up $10,000 of permanent tax savings to receive a, a $30,000 potential? Let's just say I, I was going to get a $30,000 um, uh, retirement plan. That's what I was going to if, if that's the amount that I was going to give um, into my retirement plan. Or let's say I was going to do 
I'm going to max it out. I'm going to do 55000 right? That $55,000 tax deduction translates, let's call it into, I don't do math in my head, but let's just say it translates into 30% of $55,000. Um, let's go seventeen five ish so $17,000 of temporary tax savings in exchange for $10,000 of permanent tax. And what I mean there is that that payroll tax is a permanent tax. You're never getting it back, right? If you, you pay it, you pay it. Maybe you get it back from Social Security. There's an argument there, but let's ignore that because <laughs> I can quantify no matter what, either way, you're going to get that Social Security back, right? Um, I can quantify that uh, even though you get this temporary tax savings from deferring the money, eventually someone's going to pay income tax on that 401k dollar, right? So I'll never, I will always look at the marginal spread between my temporary savings and my permanent savings, and that's my true tax savings. So instead of 30% in this, this we're looking at a 20% tax savings, and in that we won't even put a retirement plan in place then we would choose the W-2 position. So that's that's just, and again, it's super unique facts and circumstances. Mm-hmm. What are the numbers? What are we talking about? What, what is your cash flow? What are the benefits? Mm-hmm. What are What is the cash flow? What can you actually save, right? So it, it all, it, it depends. Mm-hmm. It's our favorite answer. Yeah, so kind of pivoting here to one of uh, a favorite thing that docs like to maybe I'll, I'll use the word dabble into but that's <laughs> real estate and rental properties yes what are some another one we could spend a whole episode on but what are some tax implications <laughs> that they should be aware of and common tax mistakes around handling rental properties so I'm uh, I'm gonna start the conversation out by just saying know how to calculate a cap rate right in real estate they call it the capitalization rate the cap rate return on investment yeah agree with that um so know how to calculate that and make sure it is a good investment before you get into it. And then when you do get into it, make sure that when that you're getting the depreciation expense right, right? That's I see a lot of that go go awry, right? So residential rental, you're gonna have the land, don't get any expense on that, that just kind of sits there. The building is going to um, expense over 27 and a half years because Congress tells us that after 27 and a half years, it's gonna be worth nothing. Um, and then if you have shorter life property, say carpet, carpets, um, a fence, landscape improvements, that might be five, seven or 15 year property contained within that. And you can rip the value of that out of your purchase price as well. Um, maybe it qualifies for bonus depreciation and you get to immediately expense it so that you're kind of accelerate the t- accelerating the tax deductions now. And that gets, that gets really important the larger of real estate investments that you get into right a commercial building that costs a million dollars is going to have a lot more opportunity to capture immediate expense um, than a rental property there's also going to be rentals are not easy right the rental Mm -hmm. rules are not easy they're not straightforward in general you know, you're probably going to qualify for the qualified business expense deduction. That's not that's new and that's not well understood right now. Um, but there are safe harbors which allow you to qualify and not be questioned by the IRS. A safe harbor is something where the IRS says, if you do these steps, and this is littered throughout 
regulations on taxes. If you do these steps, we will not question your answer. We will allow you to do it. You don't have to, you don't have to meet the facts and circumstances test. We are not gonna attack you on this. If you do these baseline things, we have rubber stamped the transaction or rubber stamped the, the position that has been taken on this, uh, this tax strategy mm -hmm. or, or tax position rather. So the, with the rentals in general, just making sure that it you know, goes back to books and records, right? <laughs> if you don't know about it, then, then you can't deduct it. Um, and we've seen some really funny things over the years, uh, fat keying numbers and, and claimed a $100,000 insurance expense on the rental property, right? That didn't happen. <laughs> it was a hundred, <laughs> only a hundred, not a hundred thousand. So uh, also where, where um, uh, the rental property that the, I've seen this also, um, Doc, was treated as a real estate professional, so deducted all of the rental losses from that property because you know depreciation expense. It's a paper loss. It's not a real loss. It's a paper loss. There's no cash flow associated with it. Um, deducted all of that against the W two income, and, and you can't unless you meet specific facts and circumstances, right? And a real estate professional has to have a lot of hours, and you got to be able to prove all those hours. It's like seven hundred and fifty dollars, based off my memory. Um, don't hold me to that. Um, but let's just call it 750 hours, I believe it is. Um, you're not going to be working on your little rental property 750 hours a year, right? That's that's a lot of hours. <laughs> so you're not going to be able to deduct those because they're going to get caught up in what are called the passive activity losses, right? So while it can't offset your other sources of income, it can offset other sources of rental passive activity um, in general, in general rental passive activity income. So if you have multiple law, uh, rental properties, you can have some, some ones that are producing some losses that are offsetting gains of, mm -hmm. of other investment properties. Um, that doesn't mean that you lose that, that net operating loss of that year. It just means that it carries forward and it's either going to offset future income or when you sale, sell the property, it's gonna offset some of the the gain that's calculated at that time. So just to clarify here, if you have a property that's cash flow negative, and we'll see this a lot with like someone who moves from their starter home to their dream home, and they can't sell the starter home for what they want, so they turn it into a rental. Maybe you know it's costing two thousand a month, but they're renting it for fifteen hundred a month. That five hundred dollar loss is that deductible off of their W two income when they do their taxes? Almost. But it's not going to be that $500, right? Because that $500 is going to include a principal amount on, on the repayment of that mortgage, right? So if you have a 15-year, let's just say you have a 15-year mortgage and you're paying it off fast, you might be negative cash flow but positive income. On the flip side, if you've got a 30-year mortgage, you're, you're likely going to have a, a, a loss on that rental property. It's, it's going to be, you know, your $2,000 negative or your your $500 a month negative amount um, uh, plus your depreciation expense, your non-cash depreciation expense minus the principal that you paid 
essentially minus out any other any out of pocket costs. That's going to be what your your tax loss is. So not super easy to to calculate, but in general, if you're not cash flowing, you're probably losing money. Probably. Yeah. So. So you can potentially lower your W two tax bill a little. Um, yeah. If okay. yeah, and that that's the other part of this is that that you know any tax person that listens to this podcast will find something different than what I said. And one thing different is I'm speaking in generalities and um, uh, at a certain level of income, under that level of income, roughly $150,000, then you can deduct those passive activity losses in general up to 25 grand against your other W-2 sources of income. So again, it it just goes back to... it's really complicated for every single person, right? There is a depends on the specifics. Spends, depends on the specifics, and uh, Congress told us that they made this really. They just redesigned taxes a lot in 2019, um, and for 2018, and it was so easy. Anybody could file a tax return on a postcard, right? For 2018. I, I don't know about everybody else listening to this, but um, it, it, that was miserable. They made the form the size of they the postcard. Made, they made the form the size of the, the postcard, and they added six schedules and threw everything behind. Um, the great thing is this year we don't have that anymore. They got rid of the postcard because they realized that it was silly. Um, taxes were not simplified. They were made incredibly more complex. And uh, the few folks that they were simplified are, you know, if you have a W-2 and not much else, yeah, it got a little bit simpler. But that's it. There's so much going on here. (laughs) Um, So when you have some people that have a lower income and they can basically fill out their taxes on a postcard, maybe talking to a CPA isn't necessary or, I don't know, maybe that's not the best way for them to pursue like filing their taxes but at what point do you think it is important for people to be seeking out professional help yeah i ask i ask all prospective clients to 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 essentially run a two-prong test and that Mm -hmm. first that first one is are you going to make a mistake (laughs) you don't know if you're going to make a mistake but you know you're going to get an honest answer when you say hey this is what i have going on take a look quick look and based on that conversation, you're going to be able to get a response, which is either yes or no, right? And if you're going to make a mistake or you're starting to get into types of transactions where, where it's not what you do, you shouldn't be doing it anymore, right? Um, just as an example, if you have a rental property, you, mm-hmm. yeah, you can do it on your own, but should you be doing it on your own? No. If you're doing a backdoor Roth conversion, can you do it on your own? Yes, but should you be doing it on your own? So then it's just finding the right fit for you at that point. On the second one that that I find is also a good kind of bellwether of whether you should hire someone or not is it, it's does the pain of paying someone, is it is it less than the pain of doing it on your own? <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. And, and I, I have a lot of clients that, yeah, technically, like, you can do your own return, but they don't want to do their own return. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm here for. Um, uh, when you have a team that works really closely together, it just makes it a lot easier for for those clients that that just want to do doctoring, 
Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. I'm not going to perform surgery on myself. And every time I, I WebMD myself, my doctor says, Ryan, you turn off the internet. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to shut it off for you. You're not allowed to diagnose yourself ever again. You don't have <laughs> diabetes. Just sit up right in your chair. Right? So... Uh, um, that would be my recommendation, that two-prong test. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I do feel like that's an appropriate test for a lot of areas of your life. Yeah. Like, do you want to clean your house, or would you... <laughs> is it worth it for you to pay someone else to do it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure there's some people that find the pain of paying someone else more extreme yeah. than doing it themselves, Absolutely. and they're torturing themselves. I really enjoy doing some of our yard work. My, my wife really <laughs> enjoys mowing our lawn. Right. Neither of us enjoy edging or weeding, so we have someone to do the edging and the weeding. Mm -hmm. So it's all about balance. Yes, maybe to wrap things up here, um, save the, the best for last, but retirees, if there are any retirees listening to this, I know there's a couple that uh, of my clients that regularly yeah. do, but any, uh, any tips for people in retirement to potentially minimize tax liabilities in addition to it depends? Yeah, so this kind of goes back earlier in the conversation where I mentioned, mentioned it's not just your taxes, but it's your beneficiary's taxes, right? So that's where we're really designing and should be specifically saying, okay, well, where are my income streams? Where do I have to take out of? Where am I at right now? Um, if I pull for more IRA money, um, is that going to screw up my taxability and Social Security? Am I in this little couple period year of time where I've maybe got quite a bit of social security and zero taxable and if I pull in more income it's going to be 85% taxable um, or can I do active reallocation of capital gains can I harvest capital gains at zero percent um, it just depends on on how much wealth is there when you're retired and at that point the strategy becomes completely different because if you, I'm just going to give an example. If you have um, one and a half million in in a 401k or a traditional IRA, and you you're getting Social Security, and you have a hundred thousand dollars in a taxable account, um, we're probably going to be recommending just minimizing taxes, right? And we're just going to take out kind of what we need every year to live off of. Um, take off what we need every year to live off of and call that good, likely. If you have $20 million in investable assets and taxable accounts, um, and you've got $10 million in a traditional IRA, and you've got Social Security, the Social Security doesn't even become part of the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. At that point, we are taking out as much from that traditional IRA and converting it into a Roth. We're still living off. We're not pulling it out to live off of, right? We're pulling money out of the taxable accounts with low basis, um, not triggering, or with high basis rather, not triggering um, capital gains. And uh, we're doing this for our kids because there are, I, there was a, a legislation in the works and I believe it may have passed or is going to pass where those retirement accounts when they get inherited instead of doing that old methodology where it can come out over 30 40 years you're taking everything out over 10 years so if you give your kids a million dollar 401k they've got a hundred grand in income 
a year for 10 years when they add it on top of their own income yeah and if they're anything like my grandma you know a a lot of retirees and and maybe this is you (laughs) audience maybe it's not but my grandma in particular would complain every year tell me to go back and sharpen my pencil she didn't want to pay that hundred dollars in tax she wants to pay zero like you've got all this income like you just went over the threshold and like you've got you know all this money in the account just start spending it i don't want to spend it that's for my kids all this interest all this growth that's all for my kids no but everybody wants you to spend it right just go spend it but but it's that that idea that hey yeah but let's do these other things like like you know cash and annuities and harvest that income um, in years where we have low taxes or high medical expenses to just offset things. Right. So thinking about not just how do I pay the least amount of tax always forever, but how do I make this best for for where I want the money to go? Because it's the, the I, I'm not a big fan of the approach of it's my kid's problem. Once they have the money, they can deal with the tax. Mm-hmm. Because there's a better way to do it, right? Especially when it comes to estate planning. If you have any sort of semblance of a taxable estate, you better be talking to your tax attorney and your CPA and your family so that everybody knows what's going on outside of the scope of this. But I, I'm sure that that everybody knows that if you've got kids that are going to inherit quite a bit of wealth, you should be training them for years and years on how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. how to manage that um, so that it's still there for their kids. Make them tag along to meetings with your financial advisor, yes. your CPA, and your attorney. Yep. Absolutely. Well, this was awesome. Thanks for taking the time. We'll probably steal you for another one. Absolutely. On um, There's plenty of other topics yeah. to dive into. More specifics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with Ryan, either reach out to us or you can visit thefinitygroup.com and check out our tax page. And best of luck with taxes. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on LinkedIn as well. Check out all the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our blog, thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.